So we are going to jump now into our series, in our, into our Revealed series, and we are going to uh, look at the prophet Jeremiah and how he relates to Jesus, and we'll get there in a minute. But before we do that, I want to start with something that we can fight over, all right? I want us to agree to disagree over something, and that is this. Which decade has the best music? That's what I want us to fight about, all right? So now, granted, this is going to depend on when you grew up and what memories you attach to things and the melodies and the songs and all the things. But just by way of experiment, uh, I asked Daniel, our, our you know, violin extraordinaire, our keys player, if he would help us out. So he's gonna come out. Welcome, Daniel. Welcome him, come on. <clears throat> all right, so, so Daniel's gonna play a tune. Some of you are gonna be like, I don't know it. Others of you are gonna be like, I think I know it. But depending on whether you're a child of like, late, early 80s into the mid 80s or early 90s, you're gonna, you may hear something very different than the other. All right, so let you, you play, you go. Okay, okay, so how many of you immediately were like, under pressure, ah, you, like you just went there, like you're there. How many of my people were like, yo, VIP, let's kick it. Yeah, okay, thank you. Do it again, let's hear it. You just keep going, keep going. Can you snap? Do it, I dare you snap. You're like, in church? Okay, thank you, man, thanks. All right, <laughs> all right. Yeah, so depending on when you were raised and all that, like you're, you're gonna tie and associate different, different uh, times with tunes like that. If you're like, I don't know any of those. You're more like my guy Bubba at Johnson City Honda. If you've ever ridden in the shuttle, the courtesy vehicle, the van, uh, you get in there, he always has on 50s or 60s. Like, never fails. Um, and so I always just get him to talk about like his memories associated with different songs. or what, And he can tell you. He's like, yeah, this was happening then. So it, there's something for everybody to argue over. All right? So you can do that with music. You can do this with uh, television. You, like, so you can argue over Gunsmoke or Walker, Texas Ranger. All right? You can do that. Walker, Texas Ranger, obviously. Um, but you can argue over that. You can argue I Love Lucy versus Seinfeld, like it, on and on it goes. So we can do that. Um, but the younger we are, the, the more inclined we are to give ourselves over to what's called chronological snobbery. C.S. Lewis coined this term, chronological snobbery. And it's this notion that says whatever is newer is better. So newer music is better. Newer film, better. Newer fashion, eh, maybe better, Right? Stuff comes back around. Who knew Birkenstocks were going to be back in, right? Could have just kept them, saved 100 bucks, but who knew? Um, and so we do this with all sorts of things. But then as we get older, something different happens. We start romanticizing the past. We start remembering the good old days. Like young people don't do this. Like there's not an eight-year-old right now in elementary going, man, 2017 was a good year. Like, it's just not happening. But as we get older, and I don't know when it happens, that's what we start doing. And we start reminiscing, but we also don't want to pretend like everything that's older was better either. So let, let's take technology, for instance. If you work on a computer, which you should, um, if you work on a computer on a, on a regular basis, you remember this guy from, this is 1984, all right? Now, this was when you couldn't even get in trouble on a computer. Like, you couldn't. I mean, unless you just like wrote stuff in the program or whatever. Um, but th this was 1984, and even seeing this, like it floods, if you were there, it floods your memories of like what was. This was mind-blowing. And now we would just say it's completely outdated. It's obsolete. Why in the world would you go back to using this if you could have a new one, 
But what this makes me think of were simpler times when I would sit down and play the Oregon Trail and the greatest threat to my life was not dying of dysentery. Like those were just simpler days, right? And so anyways, we start reminiscing, we romanticize, let me take that down because that's just gonna distract y'all. <laughs> um, and so we, we do all that. So not everything that's older is better either, but we've also got this battle between old and new that is alive and well in the church and in religion. And so we keep having debates such as what kind of music should we sing? What instruments are holiest? Uh, screens versus hymnals, should buildings have steeples, Sunday school or small groups, and on and on and on it goes. But those questions are really deeper than, than just our methods or aesthetics. They're actually questions about influence. Old versus new within the church, within scripture is about influence. And how you understand the difference is gonna make all the difference in the way that you live your life and the influence that you have as an individual. So you may not even realize this, but at the heart of this matter is your very own maturity in Jesus, your own formation in Christ. And then beyond that is the influence of the church as a whole in the way that we impact and influence the culture around us. And so that tension is what we're grabbing hold of this morning as we look at the relationship between the Hebrew prophet Jeremiah and Jesus. So if you've got your Bibles or you're on your device, you can look at Jeremiah 31. Um, we'll get there in just a minute. I wanna set the stage uh, because in the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament, Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? Because there's all these rumors swirling about of, as to his identity because of what he's doing, the miracles and the things that he's teaching. And his disciples answer like this. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, all of these people are dead. John the Baptist just lost his head. These others have been dead for a while now. And so there's something about Jesus's life that matches up with each of these, including Jeremiah, that's making people wonder, is this Jeremiah that's been raised from the dead and now he's walking among us and ministering to us? And so to, by way of introduction to Jeremiah, because I don't know how well you know him, um, I wanna just give you a few parallels between Jeremiah and Jesus before we launch into the part that really makes us think, oh, this has to do with Jesus. So one, Jeremiah was prepared for the work of God. He was prepared for the work of God. You read in Jeremiah chapter one, right at the start, God says to Jeremiah, I set you apart before you were even born. Before you were in the womb, I had declared that you would become a prophet to the nations. So to no credit of his own, no say in it, Jeremiah is chosen beforehand to carry out this function, this purpose. And so in the same way, obviously, we think in this Christmas season, as the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, he says, look, you're gonna have a son. Surprise. <laughs> and that son is gonna be like a prophet, but he's actually gonna be a king, a king from the line of his father, David. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And so Jesus is also, like Jeremiah, he's marked out from beforehand with this purpose to do the work of God. The second thing they have in common, Jeremiah preached the words of God, the words of God. God says to Jeremiah, this is your ministry. Whatever words I put on your lips, you have to say. And Jeremiah says, okay. And he does it faithfully. He does not win friends or influence people, but he is faithful to that call. And so we know he does this and he's preaching this message, not of fun and joy, but of repentance and impending judgment. And he preaches to the exact same people, the same crowd that Jesus preaches to, the Hebrew people, Israelites, the house of Israel. 
So they're preaching to the same people, very similar messages. Repent, the kingdom is at hand. And before we move on to a third parallel, I wanna take a moment and just talk about the culture into which Jeremiah was sent. The people that, their, their landscape, if it, as it were, of, of who he's preaching to and what's going on at the time. The most well-known king during Jeremiah's reign, and there were five of them, but the most well-known is Josiah. Now, Josiah was the grandson of Manasseh, and if you know anything about the kings of Israel, there weren't a lot of good ones. Um, and Manasseh is the worst. <laughs> Manasseh is the one that gets Israel away, far away from the covenant of God. They are completely unfaithful. They compromise to the culture and to the pagan society around them, and they, it infiltrates worship, and there's altars and idolatry everywhere. It's rampant. And God says that because of that, he's going to bring judgment on Jerusalem and on the people of Israel. Now, Josiah comes in at just eight years old and apparently has some good advisors, and I like to think his mom, and says, and says I'm gonna make a decision. I want us to restore the temple. We're gonna renovate the temple, get rid of some of these things and bring it back um, into the place that it was. And while they're renovating the temple, the, the book of the law is discovered. And that's Deuteronomy, most likely. You probably woke up this morning and thought, I need some Deuteronomy in my life. But that's what they, that's what they found, and they got pretty excited about it. And so, in fact, they read the book of the law in the presence of Josiah, and he's so grieved over what he's hearing and how far Israel has left, has gone away from the Lord. He tears his clothes, and he, he, he repents, and he grieves. He sends the priest out with these other guys, and they go to find this reputable prophet in Jerusalem, and her name is Huldah. And Huldah, they come to her, and they say, what do we do with the law? In light of everything that's happening around us, what are we supposed to do with the law? And she doesn't tell them. She says, here's what I can tell you. Judgment is coming. The, the damage is done. But you can take this word back to your king as if this is like some silver lining. Let him know that he will die before this destruction happens, which is not the message you wanna take back to the king. But they do. And, and to Josiah's credit, he is faithful to the book of the law. He calls everybody in Judah together. He institutes this top-down government reform that is widespread, and he recommits the people to the covenant. He gets rid of idols and altars. He has the former priests executed. He re-centralizes the worship of Yahweh to the temple so that that's where you can go to worship the Lord. And so all on, on all accounts, it looks like Josiah is successful in his reform. In fact, this is what a lot of Christians in America might call revival. This, this widespread reinstituting of God's law and his rule. And Jeremiah pays close attention. And what he sees becomes the basis of his longing and lament for the people of God for the next several decades. Because when he looks over the landscape and he starts seeing these different Reform. Certainly he's happy to see these idols coming down, these altars being taken away, the, the temple restored, worship restored. But as he sees this widespread reform happening, he notices it has, it's very shallow. For all of the external things that are happening, all of the ceremony and celebration, there's very little happening internally in people's hearts. In fact, they're just as drawn as they were before to the idols of culture and control and so he's left going, okay, these are the people that God has called me to. And yet within that, within that culture, they've got this false sense of security. If you read through Jeremiah, there's a false sense of security because in the old covenant, 
If it looks like you're good with God, then he should be good with you. You're protected, you're safe, you're secure. And if we're honest, that way of thinking creeps into our lives as well. It's why when something bad happens to me, my first thought usually is, Lord, I, th- I was doing this and this and I've been doing this. I don't deserve that. And that's old covenant thinking and we're all guilty of it at some time. But that was the culture into which Jeremiah was sent to preach and to teach. And that'll come back in as we continue talking through this old versus new. So imagine Jeremiah's message is not popular. And this is the third parallel. Jeremiah was punished by the people of God. So he faithfully teaches, he faithfully preaches. They don't wanna hear what he has to say. So as a result, he's beaten, he's imprisoned, he's thrown in a cistern, this big well to, to starve to death, to die. And leading the way in all of this are the people of God, led by the priests of God. It's to the point that Jeremiah even says, he pleads with God, he says, I'm like a gentle lamb led to slaughter. I mean, who does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus. John says, behold, the lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. We read about Jesus being the lamb who was slain. And in the same way, who was leading it in Jesus' day? It was the people of God, led by the priests of God, the Pharisees of God, the church leaders. So a lot of overlap in their lives. And in both instances, God's people were so closed off to the idea, the notion that God might want to do something new in them and through them, that they missed it. They completely missed what he was doing. And lastly, this is where we hinge into the life of Jesus. Jeremiah prophesied the plan of God. He prophesied the plan of God because Josiah's top-down kind of widespread reform didn't really take root. It didn't produce lasting change in people. And so he's brought in to do something new, to, to communicate this message because in God's heart, something fresh was being catalyzed. And this is where we pick up Jeremiah 31, verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. So when Jeremiah says a new covenant, I mean, this would have sent shockwaves through the people, through the hearers, because God doesn't do new. It's been hundreds of years since the Davidic covenant, hundreds of years since the Mosaic covenant and the law before that. God's not really into new, Jeremiah. And these were a people of tradition. We do what's been handed down to us. We don't change, right? They were really good church people. We don't like change. And yet God says, nope, gonna do something new. And he he signals right here in verse 32 how much it's gonna change. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. And so he signals right here, I'm I'm not rehashing the old covenant. I'm not just gonna tweak a little thing here and there in it. I'm gonna do something completely different, something completely new because clearly what has been happening is not working because people had put God in a box and they were trying to use him and manipulate him to fit along with their agendas. And God said, there's gotta be something newer. There's something better, something stronger. And this is where we find out what it is. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So it's the same goal as the covenant before, right? I will be their God, they will be my people. But he says the, the, the locus of activity needs to change. No longer is it tablets of stone out there. 
It's going to have to be things written in here. The, the people of God are going to need the presence of God within if we're going to carry out the purposes of God out there. In fact, it's said this way later by the prophet Ezekiel. He says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. We talked about this last week. There's now no need for this tabernacle out there. We will become the tabernacle. We will become the dwelling place of God. And this was blasphemy to have said this. This was punishable by death to have said something like this at this day and this time. But God says, nope, I'm gonna take up residence. And that's not even the most scandalous part of it. It's actually in verse 34 that really shows you how vastly different the old is from the new. He says, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, and then this is the part, and will remember their sins no more. Remember their sins no more. I think this is the part where like people were interested and then they were just getting a little bit frustrated with Jeremiah because I think they probably would have leaned in here and said, Jeremiah, come on, man. He's gonna remember our sins no more. Like you're, you're with us every single year on the day of atonement when the high priest has to go into the Holy of Holies and there's all the blood and all the killing and all the sacrificing because God does remember our sins. He, he doesn't forget our sins. He forgives, but he doesn't forget. And God speaking through Jeremiah says, yeah, that's gonna change. I'm, I'm, I'm now gonna do something new to where I'm not going to remember. I'm choosing to forget in addition to forgiving. In fact, he goes on in chapter 32, he says, I'll make this an everlasting covenant with them. It will never stop. I will never stop doing good to them. So it's gonna go on and on and on. And it's not contractual. But the people of God couldn't grasp this vision. Their imaginations had been stunted. Their hearts were hardened by their self-serving religiosity. They could not think that God would be doing something different and bigger than what they could imagine. So if you're one of the people Matt talked about last week, and it's so true, you started trying to read the Bible through in a year, but you face-planted in Exodus or Leviticus or maybe Numbers, you know, it happens. Maybe you've not made it to the letter that's written in the New Testament called Hebrews. Because in the letter of Hebrews, what we find is something that is kind of shocking. The Bible actually says something about the Bible that a lot of people don't know is in the Bible. And it's in Hebrews chapter eight. In Hebrews chapter eight, you get the longest quotation of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And it's what we just read. It's Jeremiah's prophecy. And just after all of that prophecy is given in Hebrews chapter eight, we find this in verse 13. The author says, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. What is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. I mean, imagine that. You're in the first century. All you've known is the old. And some new kid on the block is coming in and saying, yeah, that's obsolete. That thing is Macintosh. That is Oregon Trail. That's VHS. That is Florida Gators. Like there is nothing good coming from that. That's what gets you all, Florida Gators. Sorry. But that's it. And God's going, yeah. In order for the people of God to do what they're called to do, 
I've gotta be in them. It, this thing's gotta be mobile. It's gotta be agile. It has to be able to, to shift and shape and move and flex. And, and I, for one, am energized by where our culture is. And, and you can think I'm crazy for that, but here's why. I think for the first time in a long time, at least in my lifetime, people of all walks, and, and I'm including church people in there who've been going, going through religious motions for a long time, I think people of all walks are finally realizing and recognizing how broken things are and going, this ain't working. And there's gotta be something better. There's gotta be something different. And with that, my question would be, what do we have to show them? And I love what N.T. Wright says about Christians in this time. He says, our task as image-bearing, God-loving, Christ-shaped, spirit-filled Christians following Christ and shaping our world is to announce redemption to a world that has discovered its fallenness, to announce healing to a world that has discovered its brokenness, to proclaim love and trust to a world that knows only exploitation, fear, and suspicion. If you could use three words to describe the last couple of years, could you use any better words than that? Fear, exploitation, and suspicion. That's our culture. And I do believe the culture is looking and going, what is gonna make a difference? And we're going, no, 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 who can make a difference? And so when people look at us, for those that follow Jesus, who do they see? What do they see? What are they hearing? Because there's a lot at stake in this. And so God's inviting us to be part of the solution, but there's really two shifts. There's two radical reorientations from old to new for us to make if we're going to embody this new covenant reality. And the first is this, from external to internal. There's a move from external to internal. We saw with the new covenant, God's people will receive this new heart, a new spirit, God's spirit. And it's so important because what we saw experimented with in Josiah's day was this top-down, legislated version of righteousness. And it didn't work. It didn't work. In other words, no government can legislate the law of love into people's hearts. No government can legislate us to love Jesus, to give our lives over to the, the ways of God in the world. That doesn't mean we don't cheer on and vote for and try to push for laws that we think are gonna build up the thriving of society, but it means we understand the difference. That's part of what this is, that this new way of life starts from within and works its way out. The motivation is not if I do this or if we live this way, then God is certainly going to do this. He goes, nope, that's old covenant. That's old covenant ways of thinking. No conditional series of blessings and curses will produce the kind of commitment that comes when we say, no, I live and operate out of what Christ has already done. And here's how you know this is true. I know it's cold outside, but imagine summertime rolls around and you get invited to yet another wedding. And you have the conversation, are we going to this one? Yeah, okay, we'll go. Do we have to take a gift? Let's re-gift. Like, you know, like whatever it may be. And it comes time for the vows in the ceremony. And the groom stands before his bride and says, my dearest bride, I promise to love you with my whole heart. I will cherish you. I will provide for you. I will protect you. From the depths of my heart, I make these commitments to you so long as you meet the following conditions. You will maintain the ideal body type except in periods of pregnancy, after which you are allotted six weeks to get your body back. Oh, 
cook no less than four paleo-friendly meals a week. We spend no more than seven consecutive hours with your family. They're crazy, but I love you. And we're intimate at least 3.7 times a week. I love you so much. I love you. Like no woman in that, in that uh, church service, in that wedding ceremony is grabbing her man's arm being like, why can't you be more like that? Like that's not, that marriage ain't gonna last, by the way. <laughs> like everybody knows, that's done. But this is what God says. He goes, in this new orientation, in this new covenant, this new, this new arrangement, it's not a list of have to's. It's not a list of conditions you've got to meet for me to stay faithful. I'm given everything for you to be faithful and I'm in it to win it. I'm in it all the way. And because of this, we no longer live to deserve any kind of affection or any kind of love. We live to display it. We become these signposts of God's favor and love and grace and mercy wherever we go. And people go, that's different. There's something about that. So I show mercy and forgive and I bear and I serve one another. Why? Because Christ has done those things for me. We live internally to external. And so to live like that, you've got to have the new heart. You've got to have the new spirit within you, the spirit of God. It's why Jesus in, in John 3, you know, the Pharisee Nicodemus comes to him and says, what must I do to have eternal life? And he says, look, if you're going to see the kingdom of God, you've got to be born what? Born again. Born again, right? And that's where we get that phrase. Are you a born again Christian? You're like, I don't know what that means, but yeah, maybe. And really that word again means from above. You're born from above. You're born of heaven. In other words, your earthly heart is not going to get it done. You need a new heart. You need a new start. You need a new spirit in you. And that is exactly what happens in Acts 2 when Jesus leaves the scene and those disciples are in the upper room and the spirit of God falls on them. And for the first time, God tabernacles in his people. His presence is there and it's there to stay. And so the first question for everyone, everybody, is have you received a new heart? Have you received the spirit of God? Have you said to, to Jesus Christ, I need you in my life, I want you in my life? Because there are people watching online, there are people here who've never done that. You've gotten close, but you've never crossed the line. In the same way, there are people who've been in churches for decades Sort of just going through the motions, but living with this old covenant mentality. I gotta keep earning. I gotta keep proving I'm worthy. I gotta make up for all the things that I've done because there's no way God forgives and forgets. And Jesus says, no, where the spirit is, there's, there's freedom. And I've come to set you free from that kind of living. Free to something powerful. And so we begin with that reorientation from external to internal. We live out of that. And what we live out of that is the second reorientation where it's this vertical orientation to now it's horizontal. And here's what I mean. A vertical orientation is one in which my spirituality, my relationship with God is primarily expressed this way. I pray, I read my Bible, I do my devos, I give my tithes and offerings. Kind of irrespective of whatever's going on around me. It's just me and God. And even though in Jeremiah's time they had animal sacrifices, we wouldn't do that, but we do make our own sorts of a, sort of atonements where we do things, we know we're doing something we shouldn't, we say to God, Lord, I promise this will be the last time. If you just don't let this come back on me, I promise I'll start, I'll start attending church again. I'll be more faithful. I'll get in a group. I'll read my Bible more. I'll tithe more. I'll give more offering. And we do our own sort of old covenant thing. But this is Jeremiah and Jesus. This is what leads them both to have the same lament 
They say, these people honor me with their lips. They honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In other words, there's a disconnect. There's a distance between the God we say we love and the lives that we live. There's a disconnect between the New Testament, New Covenant scriptures we say we believe and the way that we behave. And God says, not in this new covenant. You can't, you can't fix the horizontal pains of life and these relational disconnects just by doing more of this vertical. And so we should ask ourselves, is, are there disconnects in our lives? Is there a disconnect between your lips and your heart? Is there a disconnect between your viewing habits and your heart, your browsing history, your scrolling thumbs, your texting thumbs? Or if you're older, your scrolling index finger. Is there a distance there? Is there a distance, and you can go on, is there a distance with your wallet, with your schedule, your calendar? Have you crowded out God in your life because you're so busy? So there's all sorts of ways that we're disconnected, but are we willing to name them? So one disconnect in my life that I'll let you in on, um, my wife and one of my daughters is here can vouch. One of the disconnects in my life is um, the way that I speak and the looks that I give when I'm frustrated, disappointed, annoyed at my kids. Um, and I, I didn't realize how much of an issue it was until one day I gave Lindsay, my wife, a look, and she goes, oh, that's the look that you give our kids. And it destroys them. And I thought, well, I don't, that's not the guy I want to be. That's, I don't, I can't ever imagine Jesus giving that look <laughs> to someone, let alone God looking at me that way. And then even if I don't raise my voice, I can be so snarky and spiteful and petty, sarcastic with my tongue and the way I respond in those moments. And so I try to be aware and, the, and people have been given permission to say stuff to me in response if needed. And some do, some are faithful in that. But I've just started praying this prayer, like, Holy Spirit, Lord, would you let there be love in my eyes and life on my tongue? Let there be love in my eyes so that when I look at my kids, even if they're in the, the depths of something evil, they know they're loved. And whatever I'm saying, even if it's correction, that there be life that comes from it. We all have those distances between our lips and our hearts in one way or, or another. And so for application, we could talk about spending money and uh, calendar and all the things, but I wanna focus in on what the New Testament talks about more than anything. And it's this horizontal nature of our faith. It's relational disconnect. The way that we treat one another. And Jesus, it turns out, is the great disruptor of our lives. He's the one that comes in and says, okay, with this new covenant, there's a new command. Not a suggestion, not a good principle, it's a command. He's like, we tend to love commands, here's, here's a command. And this is what he says to his disciples the night he's betrayed. A new command I give you, love one another. And if he had just stopped right there, they would have said, we know that one, that's in Leviticus. Love one another, we got that, we can do that. But that's old covenant. He goes, no, here's the new covenant part. As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. And they're like, how is it? he just washed our nasty feet? He's like been with us all this time. We've seen him do healings. We've seen him do all of these things with people that the other religious people had nothing to do with. As I have loved you, you must also love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. 
Like Jesus could have said anything. He could have said, by your doctrine, by your theology, if you get the end times right, that's how people are gonna know you're my disciples. If you have the most perfect candlelit Christmas Eve service, everyone will know you're my disciples. And he goes, no, by your love, people will know you're my disciples. People will know that this is true, that what we're doing matters. And so we ask, how has Christ loved us? And the obvious answer is all the way. <laughs> all the way. There's no loopholes. There's no easy outs, no excuses. So because Jesus didn't consider you or me unworthy of his love, there's no one unworthy of our love. That's the better way that God invites us into. And that requires a new heart. That requires the spirit of God. And I love the point that Andy Stingley makes um, on these lines. He says, people nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. People nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And it made me think, do people nothing like me like me? <laughs> like if people know what I, what I think, what I believe, the convictions I have, do they still like me? And I'd ask you the same thing. Do people nothing like you? And let's say they know your political views and your cultural you know, preferences and your, your theological holdings, but they know you're completely opposite almost in every way. But do they still like you? Are you still likable? And I asked this question at Coffee and Culture and uh, wanted to share it with you because I think it's telling. To, to take it a step further, would people nothing like you still invite you to their parties? Would they still invite you to their, their dinners? Or would they be like, no way. Just based off the conversations we've had and the spirit that's been coming back at me, there's no way I would invite them to hang out. Because the interesting thing is that Jesus got invited to those parties. Jesus got invited to those dinners. That's what the religious people didn't like about it. And they stood from afar and judged and threw rocks. And Jesus just goes, you know what? It's hard to make a difference from a distance. And he was there. And it doesn't mean he gave in. It doesn't mean he was approving of everything that was happening. But I think it's an interesting question. Would we get invited? Because Jesus leveraged his influence. And it was all love. And so I said earlier that the witness of the church is at stake. The, the credibility of the gospel, the attractiveness of the gospel is at stake. And, and the reason I care about this is because of what we've watched happen over the last couple of years, specifically within evangelical churches like GFC. We've watched people in their late teens, their 20s, early 30s, walk away. Done. Not necessarily with Jesus, but with the church. Because of the things they've said, or they've heard said, and the things they've seen done in the name of Jesus by people in the church. And these are some of the things that they, they say, this is why they've left. That there's racism, misogyny, homophobia, and then from, in 2020 especially, there's the conflation of politics and religion altogether, getting those very confused, not even sure how, they, how they're separate. And there's now, there's so many that are in this movement leaving the evangelical church, they have a, a name. They're called exvangelicals, which I hate. I hate that there's a name for it. But exvangelicals are those that have left. And so given that the next two years, we know, like let's not be surprised, the next two years in America are gonna get ugly. It's election seasons and it's campaigning and slogans and slander and all the things. 
that come with it. It doesn't matter what side you're on. It's gonna happen. And so what do our lives look like? What, are, what is our horizontal response going to be? Brendan Manning spent his life uh, as a priest and author speaking about things like this. He said, how I treat a brother or sister from day to day, whether they be Caucasian, African, Asian, or Hispanic, how I react to the sin-scarred wino on the street, how I respond to interruptions from people I dislike, how I deal with ordinary people in their normal, ordinary unbelief on an ordinary day, will speak the truth of who I am, and I would say whose I am, more poignantly than the pro-life sticker on the bumper of my car. And he would have had a pro-life sticker on his car. And you get the point. It's not a political conversation. It's a new covenant, internal to external, from vertical to horizontal conversation. It's not about being pro-life. It's not about being pro-choice. It's, we're pro-death. We are pro-dying to ourselves so that we can be alive and embody the mercy and grace and compassion and peace and patience that Jesus has shown us, that he bought for us with his blood. And that is what we take out into the world around us. And we live with this reality that you or I, and I know you've heard this before, but that you or I may be the only Christ that someone meets. And if that's the case, who do they see? What version of Jesus did they get? And so what if, and I asked this a couple weeks back, what if over the next couple of years, starting today, what if over the next couple of years, people nothing like you, people that you know disagree with you, that they would disagree with our positions? What if in spite of our beliefs, people were nonetheless drawn to Christ because of our behaviors? What if in spite of the way that you voted or the theology that you held, people were nonetheless drawn to Jesus because of the way that you treated them and spoke to them and listened to them? What if we did that? What could that look like around us? And see, this has everything to do with how Jesus is the greater Jeremiah. This has everything to do with how this ties together from Jeremiah to Jesus because this new way, this better way that made the old way obsolete. The reason it's true is because when Jeremiah was wounded on account of his message, Jesus was wounded, but his wounds have healed you. Jeremiah poetically took on the sins of Jerusalem in his, in his writings, in his laments. He poetically takes on the sin of Jerusalem. Jesus literally takes on the sins, not just of Jerusalem, but of the entire world once and for all. Jeremiah prophesies the need for a new heart, but in having his own heart pierced on the cross, Jesus made it possible for us to receive that same heart in us. What Jeremiah could only dream of, Jesus said, I have come that they would have life and have life abundant, live in the spirit, live in love towards one another. And this is the kind of heart you receive. When you accept the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and you say, that's, that's what I want, that is the kind of heart you receive. A new heart, a new start. One that we celebrate this Christmas season where the uncreated one, the uncreated one, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, enters into our brokenness 
in our loneliness, in our mess, and becomes one of us. Lowers himself that we would be lifted up by his love. And then as we are indwelled by the spirit of God, we go out and lavish that love on the world around us. That's a new way of life. That's the invitation. That's the fullness that is available to each and every person in the world. And the way that Jesus chose to inaugurate and institute this new covenant, the reminder that he gives us is the Lord's Supper, it's communion. And we're gonna celebrate that together in just a moment. But he says, I'm gonna make this covenant, I'm gonna seal it with my blood. No more sacrifices year after year after year. Once and for all, one final sacrifice for all times. So that's what we're gonna celebrate. So I'm gonna pray, we'll sing. As we're singing, if you don't have your elements, you can go grab those at the back of the room and then we'll, we'll have communion together. Let's pray. Holy Father, we are uh, mindful in this moment as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper that it was no accident it wasn't coincidence that you undid the old with the new, that you said this would be sealed by the blood of Jesus. And that is the only boast that we have in this life and in death is that we have been forgiven, that our wretchedness has been exchanged for the righteousness of Christ. And so we give thanks. Spirit, where there is in our lives a distance between what we say we believe and the way that we live, whatever that is, Lord, may we be honest about it, name it. You've already forgiven us, but I pray that we would have the courage to tell someone, to talk about that, to be in community with one another. Lord, I think about the the hurting, the broken, the lonely, the isolated. We know the emotions and the feelings that this season brings with it for so many. And so we pray to you, our comforting God, that you would draw near, that you would embrace, that you would enliven. Lord, remind us again of our first love of Jesus, of the life that we have in him. So we give thanks now as we sing, as we reflect. Spirit, would you do the work that only you can do? We pray in Christ's name, amen.